It's just a privilege to welcome you to worship at Walnut Creek Church, especially if you're new with us this morning and we haven't had a chance to meet. Um, it's good to have you here. Uh, this morning we are in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. So over the last several weeks we've been working through the end of the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be finishing it up here in a couple weeks. But this morning we're in 24, 13 through 35. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open those with me to Luke 24. And this is taking place the same day as the resurrection of Christ. That's what's going on. Jesus rose from the dead and the tomb was empty. Death is defeated. And the disciples at this point, they're still trying to make sense of it all. We understand that Jesus rose from the dead. The disciples, all they really knew was that the tomb was empty. They didn't really know what that all meant. And so we're going to pick up in verse 13 as we study the encounter that the disciples had with the resurrected Jesus. So verse 13 of chapter 24 in the Gospel of Luke says this. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things? he asked them. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going further. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. But he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what has happened, what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. So there is the passage that we're going to spend some time studying this morning. But before we get into it, what I want to do is I just want to invite us all to spend some time praying. Okay? Now we believe that our ability to 
understand God's word and to obey God's word. It does not rest solely on our own efforts. We need the Lord's help with this. And so it's good and appropriate that we just spend time together praying and asking for himself in that. We also believe that prayer is not something that God has just invited us into. It's something that he's commanded us into. He's, he's commanded his followers to pray to him. And the thing about that is prayer, it doesn't have any necessarily prerequisites tied to it. God's people can pray and God's hear, God hears the prayers of his people. And so what I'm going to ask you to do at this time, just you're going to stick your heads together with two or three other people that are nearby you. Circle up with them as you're able to. And just ask that God would use this time so that we might understand his word rightly and apply it to our, our lives well. If you're new with us, and you're thinking, this is not really something I've done before, that's okay. That's, that's okay. You, you can introduce yourself to someone you're sitting next to, and at the very least, listen in, but, but by all means, we invite you to pray with us, okay? And so, at this time, I'll step away. You guys can spend a couple minutes in prayer, and then I'll pray to get us going into our passage. Go ahead. Father in heaven, thank you that you hear our prayers. Thank you that you've invited us, and not only that, you've commanded us to approach you, to seek your face. And we thank you, God, that you've made yourself known to us, that we can know you because of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word and how you use your word to illuminate so much to us, God. You reveal ourselves to our own selves, more so you reveal yourself to us. And pray, God, that this morning you'd help us to see Christ through the scriptures. We need your grace for this. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. So this morning, I've got a question for you to get us started. Okay? And here's the deal. You're going to answer this question by a show of hands, and you need to be honest. Okay? Which means you have to believe that there's no one here that's actually going to judge you for your answer. Okay? You're going to raise your hand nice and, nice and high. If this is you, by a show of hands, who can recall a TV commercial that has made them cry? Don't, don't be embarrassed. It's okay. Here's, you know what that means? It means you're just, you are more in touch with your inner emotions and humanity needs more people like you. That's great. Don't be ashamed. But if, if you didn't raise your hand, that's okay too. Because you know what that means? It just means that you have this unmatched inner stability and nothing can shake you. So good job. Good job. Okay, raise your hand if you weren't honest the first time. Okay. 
Here's the, here's the deal. If you can remember crying at a TV commercial, was that the point of the commercial just to get some tears going? Probably not, right? It, it wasn't just to get you to cry. It might have been part of the goal, but the primary purpose was likely to convince you to buy something, right? What companies know is the way to your pocketbooks is through your tears, And so they try to evoke some sort of emotion from you. But the emotion, it's not the end game. It matters. It's more so, though, a means to the end in that commercial world. And what we have in our passage this morning, I think, is something similar in a way. Just slightly reversed. And here's what I mean. Luke, in his passage, in Luke 24, I think he has a dual purpose. I think... He's, he's trying to communicate something very important to us. And we understand that all the way back from Luke 1, in verse 3 and 4, Luke 1, in verse 3, it says, It also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you've been instructed. So the entire purpose of the gospel of Luke is to do what? It's to provide certainty. To provide evidence or proof. This, this is all the way from Jesus' miraculous birth to his ministry, to his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his ascension, his resurrection. All of those things, Luke is trying to provide evidence or proof. In our passage this morning, in my estimation, it is one of the most pivotal passages for establishing the certainty of the resurrection. And if we can establish certainty of the resurrection, we actually have certainty of all the things about Jesus. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then certainly Jesus is who he claimed to be. And so this is one purpose of our passage. It's to provide logical proof of the resurrection of Christ. In other words, it's to enlighten the mind. I think Luke wants to enlighten our mind in this. And so this morning, what I want to do is begin by drawing out three reasons from our text that we can trust in the resurrection of Christ. And my goal in doing so, it's not just to provide us with some ammunition to use against an unbelieving uncle at the dinner table. That's, that's not the point. It's not even to provide a complete, comprehensive, airtight apologetic for the resurrection of Christ. It's simply for the purpose of encouraging our hearts. To help us see that when we believe in the resurrection of Christ, we're not just believing what is true and what is the only source of hope for humanity, but we are also believing what is logical when we consider all the data points. Okay? So we'll work through those three reasons, but after we do that, we're going to back up and we're going to take a look at what I believe is Luke's primary purpose in this passage. The second purpose, but also primary, it's one is to enlighten the mind. But I think his primary purpose, it's really to ignite the heart. It's to help our hearts have an ignition of fire for the Lord. See, companies know the way to someone's money, it's through the heart. Luke knows the way to someone's heart, it's through the mind. The mind matters, and we'll dive into that. It's just not the end game for us this morning. The end game for us this morning, it's a heart that beats for Christ. And so if you're taking notes this morning, you want an outline to follow, there's three reasons we're going to look at where we can trust the resurrection of Christ. And they are, number one, the changed appearance of the Savior. Number two, we'll look at the changed perspectives on the Scriptures. And then number three, we'll look at the changed priorities of the saints. Okay? Changed appearance of the Savior, changed perspective of the Scriptures, and changed priorities of the saints. And then we'll back up and we'll look at the changed 
demeanor of the disciples. Okay, so that's how our passage is going to be organized this morning. So we're going to start, again, Luke 24, verse 13. It says, Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk with them. They were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped and looked discouraged. So this is the the changed appearance of the Savior. Jesus comes and appears to the disciples. And so the question we want to ask ourselves is, well, how does this appearance actually give us confidence that he really did rise from the dead? And I think there's, there's three or four actually historical facts that really are undisputed among respected scholars and historians, both believers and unbelievers alike. And these, these facts are that Jesus of Nazareth existed. Jesus of Nazareth was executed by Roman crucifixion and placed in a tomb. Jesus of Nazareth's tomb was empty three days later. And then the disciples claimed that Jesus appeared to them afterwards. Right? These, are, these are facts, historical facts, rooted in history. And of these facts, the third and fourth ones, they require some sort of explanation. Right? What happened to the body of Jesus? And what did the disciples actually see? When they claimed to have seen Jesus, what were they actually seeing? And there's a number of explanations for these questions that have circulated through time. One explanation is that, well, Jesus didn't actually die. Instead, he he recovered from the hanging on the cross and he walked out of the tomb himself. And think about that for a minute. What what would that have required Jesus to actually do? Right? He he would have been flogged to the point of near death, then nailed to a cross, pierced in the side, taken off the cross without a heartbeat or the breath of life in him, wrapped tightly in burial clothes placed in a dark tomb with limited oxygen, and in that state, Jesus himself would have been able to wake up, manage to take the burial clothes off of him, unroll this massive stone from the inside without the Roman guards knowing, walk out completely naked, look for some clothes, appear like any typical 33-year-old man visiting Jerusalem for the Passover, and then join these disciples on a seven-mile hike to Emmaus. To say that Jesus didn't actually die is not quite logical, is it? It's one way that people try to explain the empty tomb. But what about, what did the disciples actually see? Well, maybe the disciples were hallucinating. They, they thought they saw the risen Jesus. They wanted so badly for their Messiah to rise from the dead that their imaginations led them to believe that that's what was actually happening. And this this could make sense except for Jesus appeared to these two disciples, right? And then before he appeared to these two disciples, he also appeared to Mary Magdalene and to Peter. And then following his appearance to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he also appeared to the 11 disciples on more than one occasion. He appeared to more than 500 other followers at the same time. You know, the likelihood of two people having the same hallucination at the same time is minimal. But think about 500 people thinking they see the same thing. It's not likely. But then also, if the disciples were hallucinating, wouldn't they just need to produce the body of Jesus? Say, you know what, guys, it's right here. But no one could and no one has. 
So then what happened to the body? Well, maybe, maybe the disciples stole the body and hid it somewhere to make it look like Jesus actually had risen. This is the story that's been circulating ever since the day the tomb was discovered empty. Do you know that? In, in Matthew, we read that Pilate had ordered the tomb to be guarded with Roman soldiers at the request of the Jewish leaders and Pharisees to make sure the body wasn't stolen. And then in Matthew 28, here's what it says, verse 11. As they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, Say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we'll, take, we'll deal with him and keep you out of trouble. They took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been spread among Jewish people to this day. So according to Matthew, it's, it's the Pharisees and the Romans that are plotting to manipulate the truth, not Jesus' disciples. But something else that's important to notice this morning from our passage. Verse 14 and 15. If you look at verse 14 and 15 in Luke 24, here's what it says. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then they asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and they looked discouraged. They looked discouraged. The demeanor of the disciples, they, they were despondent. They were disgruntled. They were hopeless. They were arguing and bickering with one another. And then keep reading in the text. It says, the one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things, he asked them. So the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who is a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to death to be, handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that he had, they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. The disciples knew the tomb was empty. They had reason to believe the tomb was empty. They're affirming that the tomb was empty. And here they are walking along the road, arguing, discouraged, hopeless. Why? They know the tomb is empty. Why are they so discouraged? It's because they did not understand who Jesus was. They did not understand what it meant for Jesus to be the one to redeem Israel, and they did not yet understand that Jesus was going to literally rise from the dead. That was new to them. Luke is careful to point out that even when Jesus did predict his death to their faces, they did not understand what he was talking about. Back in Luke 18, in verse 31, he took the twelve aside and told them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked, insulted, spit on, and after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. And then it says, they understood none of these things. The meaning of the saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Here's why this is important. 
contriving a plan to make it look like Jesus rose from the dead would not have even crossed the disciples' minds. They did not understand that the prophets, the prophets that had predicted it, they did not understand it when Jesus himself foretold his resurrection. So all of these explanations, they fall short of the simple logic when trying to make sense of the empty tomb. See, Jesus did not come close to death and then recover enough to walk out of the tomb on his own strength. The disciples, they weren't just seeing things. And the disciples did not and had no reason to steal the body of Jesus. So the only logical explanation for the empty tomb is that God miraculously raised Jesus from the dead. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, his physical appearance was changed. It was no longer what it was when he was nailed to the cross. And this appearance to Jesus, appearance of Jesus to the disciples is one reason why we can absolutely trust in the resurrection of Christ. But his disciples, they were slow to understand this. And so Jesus responds to his disciples with a rebuke. And in Jesus' response, we're made aware of another reason why we can absolutely trust in the resurrection of Christ. And it is the scriptures. The scriptures, and particularly this changed perspective on the scriptures that Jesus is going to show his disciples. So in verse 25 of the text, it says, He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Beginning with Moses and the prophets. You know what books of the Bible Moses wrote? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Jesus, he, he walked through the entirety of Scripture beginning from Genesis all the way to the prophet Malachi so that they could see how all the Scriptures would point to Christ. I think he likely started with Genesis 3.15 where God is speaking to the serpent after the fall. He says, I'll put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And Jesus would have pointed out that he was the one who would strike the serpent's head and defeating him for good. Jesus would have pointed out the covenant that God made through Abraham when he promised to make him into a great nation. That all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. Jesus would have pointed out that it was actually Jesus that was going to be the one to make that possible. He would have pointed likely to Abraham sacrificing Isaac as an offering to the Lord. Jesus could have explained the spiritual parallels between that situation and that of God sacrificing his own son on the cross. Jesus likely could have pointed to the Passover, helping them see that just as God's wrath passed over those who had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, God's wrath passes over those who trust in the blood of Jesus. He likely could have pointed out the crossing of the Red Sea, just how God led his people out of slavery to the Egyptians God leads his people out of slavery to sin through the blood of Christ. He could have pointed to the sacrificial system and the means for making atonement for sin. He would have explained how he was the perfect sacrifice, making atonement for sin once and for all. And specifically as it relates to his resurrection, he could have pointed to Jonah and the whale. And just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so also Jesus would be in the tomb for three days before being resurrected. He could have pointed to Isaiah 53.10, 
which says after his anguish, he will see the light and be satisfied. As it speaks of the crucifixion of Christ, there is this glimmer of hope that he will still see the light and be satisfied. Or Hosea 6, 1-2, it says, Come, let's return to the Lord, for he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us and he will bind up our wounds. He will revive us after two days and on the third day he will raise us up so we can live in his presence. Remember, the, the disciples are trying to make sense of the empty tomb. And Jesus says in verse 26, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter his glory? Jesus is making the case for his resurrection from the scriptures. From the scriptures. And so, We have reason to believe that the resurrection of Christ actually occurred because Jesus appeared to his disciples. We have reason to believe in the resurrection of Christ because the scriptures testify to it. And as we continue in our text, we'll see the third reason. It's the changed priorities of the saints. So verse 28 in our text says, They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. So remember when Jesus first appeared to the disciples, they were prevented from recognizing him. But now, as they sat together and Jesus took the bread and he broke it, which is very similar to what we see in the Last Supper, their, their eyes are all of a sudden opened. And they recognized Jesus as the risen Lord. It was nearing the end of the day. They had just arrived to Emmaus after a seven-mile hike. And it's here that their eyes are open to the reality of the risen Christ. And it says that very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. You know that if I'm upstairs in my house, and I go downstairs... And I realized I forgot something upstairs. Whatever I forgot better be pretty important for me to turn around and want to go back upstairs, right? Here's these disciples. They just walked seven miles. It's the end of the day. They're ready to retire. And it says that same hour they stand up and they make that same journey back. Something really significant must have compelled them to make that journey back to Jerusalem. And this change of priority... It's one little glimpse of a greater reality that's happening all among the disciples during this time. See, after Jesus died, the disciples, they more or less, they went into hiding. They were cowardly and they were afraid. They were uncertain. We read at the beginning of Acts that he had suffered. He also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And then he ascended back to the Father, and the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples. And then in Acts 2, we read of how Peter stood up with the 11 disciples and boldly proclaimed that God had resurrected Jesus and that they were all witnesses of it. What happened? How did we get from where we were to where we are now? See, the priorities of the disciples are no longer 
themselves. They're no longer preserving themselves. The, the priorities of the disciples, they shifted dramatically to the proclamation of the risen Christ. This is not something that happened gradually. It's not something that took a while to gain traction. Our text says that very hour, the disciples stood up and walked back to Jerusalem. See, this is evidence that there indeed was a risen Christ. The changed appearance of the Savior, the changed perspective of the Scriptures, the changed priorities of the saints, they all serve as evidence that points to the actual historical resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. This is serving Luke's purpose for his gospel and establishing certainty about what Theophilus had been instructed in. They serve the purpose of enlightening the mind. But there's another purpose, remember, that I want to visit this morning as we wrap up our time. See, I'm not convinced that Luke's purpose here is simply to provide convincing proof of the resurrection. I think he wants to communicate something to ignite our hearts. And we're going to see this as we look at the changed demeanor of the disciples. See, remember back in verses 13 through 16, the disciples, they're arguing. They're bickering. They're discouraged. They're despondent. And at the end of this passage, the disciples exclaim that their hearts are burning within them. What happened? What caused their demeanor to change so drastically? What was it that moved the disciples from discouragement and hopelessness to confidence and hopefulness? What was it? Before we answer that, though, think about this. Have you ever been in a season of discouragement and hopelessness? Have you ever been in a state of confusion? You're feeling like there's a lack of clarity around life in general. Maybe you're currently there today. Maybe you know someone that's currently there. You're just waiting for some clouds to part so you can make sense of everything. See, asking the question, what was it that moved the disciples from discouragement to hope, it's not a reading comprehension question. Right? We're not trying to trace the development of a character through a story for some academic exercise. That's not what we're doing. What we want is to understand where real hope for our souls can be found. What was it that caused the disciples' demeanor to change? What moved them, moved them from hopelessness to hopefulness? What I think is interesting is Luke makes clear two things that are not the source of this hope. First, it wasn't just a simple knowledge of the gospel. That was not the reason for their hope. There, there wasn't, their hope was not found in just being able to articulate the historical facts around the gospel. They could do that. They believed in the all-powerful, one true God. They understood Him to be all-powerful and all-loving and all-wise. They, they knew that all of humanity stood under the curse of sin and that they needed forgiveness for their sins if they were going to escape God's wrath and experience eternal life with Him. They articulated the historical facts accurately to Jesus, that He was crucified, that He died, that He was buried, and that on the third day the tomb was found empty. But knowing these facts did not generate hope in the disciples. And it wasn't the simple knowledge of the scriptures either. Right? Jesus assumes in his rebuke and explanation that they had at least read Moses and the prophets. There was familiarity of God's word for the disciples. 
They had read it, they understood it, at least in part, what the scriptures had taught. So it wasn't this just a knowledge of the historical facts around the gospel. It wasn't a knowledge of the scriptures. What was it? It was seeing Jesus for who he was. It was seeing Jesus rightly. The resurrected Savior. He reclined, they reclined at the table with them and took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and what happened? They recognized him. But he disappeared from their sight. Then they said, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? As we work through this, there, there are two connection points that we need to make here. The two connection points we need to make, they are who and how. Who and how. We'll work through this. Who caused them to recognize Jesus? It says that their eyes were opened. It does not say they opened their own eyes. God himself revealed Jesus to them. What we understand is that God is always the main actor in allowing people to come to Jesus and see him for who he is. God opened the disciples' eyes to see a physical reality. Jesus physically right in front of them. The actual physical person of Jesus. In a similar way, God is the one who must open our eyes to see the spiritual reality. To see that Jesus himself is the Savior of the world. Apart from God working in our lives, our eyes cannot be opened opened to the reality of the risen christ it is god who works second corinthians 4 6 it says for god who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts he god has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of god's glory in the face of jesus christ so that's the first connection we understand it is who the second connection is how how does god allow his people to see christ thing about this is it's not a mystery god doesn't just blast people with sudden spiritual clarity randomly it's not how it works it's not an unknowable means see the risen christ was the object and anchor of the of their hope of the disciples hope how did they come to recognize christ what means did god use to open their eyes jesus was real revealed to them through the scriptures through God's word. Okay, think about this for a minute. Jesus and his disciples are walking back to Emmaus. The disciples, they're discouraged. They're downtrodden. And Jesus comes up and he starts walking alongside them. In that moment, Jesus could have done anything. He could have done anything to encourage their hearts. He could have just opened their eyes right then and there. He could have transported them suddenly to Emmaus and skipped the whole seven-mile walk. He could have done any number of miracles to prove that he was indeed the all-powerful risen Christ. But instead, Jesus walks them through the scriptures, pointing out how the scriptures testify about him. And then the disciples state that it was when Jesus was with them, explaining the scriptures that their hearts burned. And upon realizing this, they were filled with hope and they returned to Jerusalem. See, God opened their eyes to see Jesus through the scriptures. The risen Christ is the object and anchor of our hope. How do we come to see Christ? How does God reveal the person of Christ to us? The same way. Jesus is revealed to us through the scriptures. 
Life and hope is found in seeing Christ, in knowing Christ, in walking with Christ. And the means of doing so, it is through the Word of God. See, Scriptures reveal Christ. The Word of God is the means through which God makes Christ known. And we are there, it is therefore the means through which we find life and hope for our souls. It is seeing, knowing, and walking with Christ through the Word of God, through the Bible, that our hearts will also burn within us. See, I, I think this is what Luke is wanting us to get from this passage this morning. The Scriptures point to Christ. How do we walk with Christ? It is through the Scriptures. And so in light of that, I've got two application points for us this morning. And the first one, you probably guessed it, to be a consumer of God's Word. Consume God's Word. Devour the Word of God. Not just to know the Scripture. Not just to memorize a Bible verse and say, oh, check, I did it. It, No, listen to it and read it and study it and meditate on it and memorize it for the purpose of knowing Christ, for the purpose of walking with Christ, of seeing Christ, that you might have life and have it abundantly. Find time daily on your own just to, to be in God's Word. If you don't have a reading plan, find, find some plan to help you just walk through the Scriptures and in doing so, find Christ. See Jesus in the Scriptures. You know, another really important and helpful way to be a consumer of God's Word, it's to come to church. It's to be here and to listen with ears open and a heart to learn. If you're newer to Walnut Creek Church, it might be helpful to know this. One of the things that we highly value here at Walnut Creek Church is something called Christ-centered expositional preaching. Okay? This is a big combination of words here. Two parts to it. Expositional. That expositional part, it just means what we try to do is draw meaning out of the text. Okay, God's word has meaning. We want to understand what that meaning is. The opposite of that would be we have our own understanding and we want to read into the text. That's not what we want to do. We want to draw meaning out of the text. But we want to do so in a way that is centered on Christ. We want to preach in a Christ-centered way. So, for example, in a couple weeks, we're jumping back into the book of Genesis. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It has zero mention of the name Jesus Christ in it. But Jesus himself told us, and the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that all of Scripture, beginning with Moses, it all points to him. And so our goal each Sunday morning is to point to Christ, to be faithful to the purpose of Scripture, which is to point to Christ. Do you know why that's our goal? Because that's where hope is found. That's where life is found for our souls. We don't need to be told how to live like better Christians. We don't need just this theological information dumped into our minds. Some of that is really, really helpful. But what we need more than anything else, it is to see Christ, to be exposed to the person of Christ and to walk with him. And we do that through the scriptures. And this leads to the second point of application. Be a consumer of God's word, yes. But also be a communicator of God's word communicate God's word. If you are consuming God's word, likely you will communicate God's word. You know, God's word is not meant to be kept to yourself. And the communication of God's word, it's not meant to be reserved exclusively for pastors and preachers. It's for everybody. Colossians 3.16, it says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. In other words, church, consume God's word. 
consume it. Let it be among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. In other words, church, communicate God's word. Speak God's word to one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Be communicators of God's word. Why? Because that's what we need. We need to see Jesus and we can point one another to Jesus through the communication of God's word. Ask yourself this question. When was the last time you intentionally communicated something to someone else from God's word? When was the last time God's word was intentionally on your lips towards your kids, towards your spouse, your brothers and sisters in your community group, your roommates, your neighbors, your friends at school, your teammates? Is God's word on your lips? Are you communicating it? See, God's word, what does it do? It proclaims Christ. And Christ is the source of life. If we want to be people that experience life with Christ, we need to be consumers of God's word. If we want our hearts to be on fire for Christ, if we want our hearts to burn within us, we need to be consumers of God's word. If we want to point people towards life, towards the abundant life with Christ, we need to be communicators of God's word. The scriptures point to Christ. Another way we point one another to Christ it is through the partaking of the Lord's Supper together. You know, each week we have an opportunity to remember the Lord and what He accomplished for us on the cross. Okay, so we, we proclaim Christ through God's Word, but this is also, as we partake in the Lord's Supper together, an opportunity for us to proclaim Christ. And if you're new with us this morning, or, or maybe you've never really heard or understood the Gospel before, you're wondering, why does all of this matter? Why does it matter that we believe in the resurrection so strongly? Why does it matter that we proclaim Christ to one another? I want to take just one minute, and I want to explain that right now. Okay? See, the first thing that we need to do is we need to acknowledge that nothing and no one exists outside of God. See, God exists, and He is the one that has spoken all things into existence. The, the means he had, this means what, I'm sorry, this, what this means is he has ultimate authority over his creation. This includes you and me. God is all powerful, all supreme, all wise. And he is the one who has set standards for his people to live by. And the standard, what it is, it is complete holiness, complete righteousness, complete blamelessness. And it is a standard that no human in the history of the world, saved from Christ, was able to meet. See, every one of us has sinned against God. We lie. We lust. We cheat. We steal. We hate. We're greedy. We're self-servers. We're proud. We do not worship God as we ought. And because of this, we deserve God's wrath. We deserve his judgment because God is supreme. He is the ultimate authority. And his judgment and his authority, they are good and they are right. But God is also a God of love. And rather than pouring out his wrath on all of humanity, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus did uphold God's standard. Jesus was perfectly holy and blameless and righteous. And Jesus did not deserve the wrath of God, or his judgment. But because he loves us, he gave his life for us on the cross. He endured the wrath of the Father on our behalf. Jesus died so that we wouldn't have to. 
Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. He established victory over death. And this happened so that whoever puts their faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins will also be raised to new life with Christ. This is the gospel. Okay, this is why we partake in the Lord's Supper together each week. This is what we proclaim together when we take the cup and the bread. If you have placed your faith in Christ, this table is set for you. The bread represents the body of Christ which was broken for you on the cross. The cup represents the blood of Christ which was shed for you on the cross. And if you have not come to faith in Christ, if the gospel is not something you have believed, if you have not submitted your life under the lordship of Jesus, then communion is not for you. And our prayer is that one day you would see your need for Christ. You would turn to him and you would receive the hope of eternal life that is found only in him. Okay, so the elements are placed under the seat in front of you. You can take those at this time. I'll go ahead and pray for us and then we can take a few minutes to reflect on the life that the death of Christ has secured for us. Band will come back up and lead us in a time of worship together to close our service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that your word, it points to the source of our salvation. It points to life. It points to Christ. We thank you that you haven't left us on our own to pay the price for our sin, but instead Jesus came. He paid the price that we deserve. God, I pray that you would help your word to be in our hearts. You would help your word to be on our lips as a church, God, that we would be pointing one another to life in Christ. We need your help for this. We need your grace for this. Help us now just to reflect anew on the incredible gospel of Jesus, the fact that his blood has secured forgiveness for sin. His resurrection has secured the hope of eternal life for us. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.